Hello and welcome to the sixth episode of Pop Art. I am your We Need Descent but Creative Descent host, Howard Kasner. The concept of Pop Art is for my guests to choose a movie from popular culture, and I in turn will choose a film from the more art classic side of cinema. Today, my guest is film enthusiast and podcaster The Vern of Cinema Recall, who has chosen Paul Verhoeven's first foray into Hollywood filmmaking, Robocop. And I, in turn, have chosen George Lucas's first foray into feature filmmaking, THX 1138, both dystopian sci-fi films with roboticized police forces. So to begin, I shall let The Vern uh, tell us a little bit more about himself. Well, thank you very much, Howard. I'm very thankful to be on this podcast of Pop Arts. Uh, yes, I am The Vern, and I do something rarely different. I host a movie podcast. I know seems out there, seems kind of strange. I do a movie podcast. Basically, I bring on a guest every once in a while, and we talk about a movie, and then we'll talk about our favorite moments in that movie and try to get into a little discussion, what makes it so iconic. And then I also post little solo reviews on my podcast, do a different series of subjects, I'm starting to do one now on forgotten filmmakers, filmmakers who seemed really big at one time and then they just kind of fell under the radar. I'm also going to be releasing episodes talking about movies that changed me. So let's start with your choice, which is RoboCop. Yes. First of all, I'll give some information on it. Uh, RoboCop came out in 1987. It was directed by Paul Verhoeven. Uh, the writers were Edward Neumeyer and Michael Miner. It stars Peter Rellen, Nancy Ellen, Dan O'Hurley, Ronnie Cox, Kurtwood Smith, Miguel Freire, Paul McCrane. The basic premise is that in a crumbling Detroit, which I guess is not so futuristic as it may sound, the city's police force has been privatized by a corporation, Omni Consumer Products, to create a cyborg out of a police officer who has died in the line of duty. So to begin, why did you choose this film? Well, this is a movie from my childhood. Now, the movie came out in 87, and I really didn't see Robocop until Robocop 2, and I know that both Robotop movies I was watched was watched heavily with me and a friend of mine. I must have been around 12, 13 years old, and I know that this was a movie that was completely inappropriate for us. But <laughs> it, it got an X rating at first, and I think they had to re-edit it 17 times. Yeah, to and get the, an R. The weird thing too, I think the unedited version of the movie has a little bit more absurd comedy into it that's lost in the R-rated version. The R-rated version, when they take away all that excess blood and gore, makes it seem a little bit more somber, mm -hmm. uh, especially the sequence when Ed 209 shoots up the place and he, he kills that poor guy, Kenny. Spoilers around if you haven't seen Robocop. Oh, yes. You know, uh, oh. But, spoilers, spoilers, spoilers everywhere. But we just love the just crazy comedy of that because Guy gets shot up to pieces. And then 
at the end of it, someone's talking about calling a paramedic. When you don't see the Atsa's blood being shot out of him, the comedy gets to be lost. But yeah, come on, I'm 13 years old, robots are in the thing. I just loved all the action, loved all the lines, especially when we had the Bitsby Snyder show, the I'll buy that for a dollar. At the time when I was watching it, when I was 13 years old, I never got any of the satire that Mm -hmm. it was going for. I just thought, oh man, movie about a robot and he's cool, he's got a gun that blows bad guys away. This is just freaking awesome. And then years later, when I watched it again, you get to understand a little bit more of the satire elements that Paul Verhoeven was going for because at the time when Paul Verhoeven was making this movie, this was his first English language movie. His, his first Hollywood feature, yes. He's from oh. the Netherlands. He did one English film, Flesh and Blood, or Flesh Plus Blood, but this was his first Hollywood film. And it seems that he's kind of doing a satire on action movies and have everything just go way over the top. So uh, do you think it still holds up on a recent viewing? Do you it, like it as much as you did originally? You know, I, I do. I really think that the world is established very well. And it has something to say about corporations wanting to put their hands on everything. I mean, if like Google can make a police force, this is what kind of it would be. The character that Miguel Ferrer plays means well by having this robot police force able to handle crime in this uh, crime-ridden area, but he's also consumed by greed as well. He can be seen as the bad guy because he's working for OCP, and the head guy from OCP is really power-hungry. Dana Hurley, he is sort of the president or owner, but under him, uh, yeah, Ferrer's chief opponent. And you got Mikhail Ferrer's character, who just completely overshadows him with his new Robotop program, because Ryan Cotts really wants the Ed 209 program to go well so that military can buy up his idea and make him a lot of money. But yeah, I still think the satire still holds up with this. I think what makes the movie great is all the little ad breaks, because in most movies, you would have begun your movie with a big action sequence. And I was listening to the commentary of this movie, and apparently Paul Verhoeven, Michael Meyer, Miner, and Ed Newmeyer wrote an intro that would show you all the bad guys, and they were involved in this, like, donut shop robbery. But I thought it was great that they scrapped that and have it open with a news program, which is really kind of different for a movie to do. I mean, it just showed the opening tells of Robotop, and then the net sequences, you're watching a news program, and then there's commercials inside of the news program. And the movie hasn't even started yet, but it gets you into that world. And right. you have the commercials with the, the hearts and all... Well, the, the nuclear game yeah, is the, probably the best. The, the nuclear is absolutely great. Yeah, I think that has something to say during the time of the 80s, the Cold War we had going on with Russia. Well, I think you do bring up some interesting ideas there. One of them is that, as I understand it, the commercials were Paul Verhoeven's idea. In fact, when he first got the script, he threw it in the wastebasket. Yeah. And his wife got it out and read it and said, I think you need to take a second look. And I think he was trying to bring something deeper to what was essentially just a shoot 'em up sci-fi 
cop movie that the original writers wanted. So I think you make a good point there that he was trying to do something different. He wasn't trying to do the same old thing. And he was trying to bring a sort of often satiric look at the subject matter. Yeah, I mean, because I knew that the writers of this, they were having a really pro- hard problem trying to get this script sold because it just said Robocop. And yeah. most people just kind of threw in the trash thinking that, well, this looks like some sort of a Roger Corman B-movie feature in another director's hands. But I think that Paul Verhoeven, along with his cast members, they really make you believe in this world. As absurd and as weird as crazy it gets, they actually have some really dramatic moments in this, uh, especially when we come to the character of Loomis, played by Nancy Allen, who is Murphy's partner. And there is a great sequence when she questions him about who he is and she just looks at him and says Murphy it's you right and I say this sort of starts him off with a sort of existential crisis of who is he is he somebody is he human or is he just a robot yeah because if you watch that scene his face I mean even though you're not actually seeing his eyes Peter Weller had to do a hell of a job just acting with his mouth Yes, a great and, lower part of his face that's very expressive yeah which is strange because his eyes are the most intriguing thing about him they're, they're the first things that you really notice are his eyes but the bottom half of his face is actually very very expressive yeah and you know i i can't really talk about robotop without mentioning the bad guys kurtwood smith as the head bad guy clarence bonnaker what an amazing role that well, he was. was cast against type so was ronnie cox but yeah i read know. that too that ronnie cox is cast as a nice guy in a lot usually of he was he was in deliverance before this and the Kurdward Smith was usually, I guess, an intellectual, they said. But after this, he tended to play assholes. You're right, Howard, because he also was an asshole, dictator president character in Paul Verhoeven's follow-up feature, Total Recall. And uh, he was, I believe, the father in Dead Poets Society. And then he plays sort of a variation on that kind of character on that 70s show. Howard, do you remember when Robocop was big and it had all the toys and the cartoon show? I didn't follow Robocop that closely. I saw it when it came out, but I knew that it certainly was one of those films that did was was very big when it came to products and spinoffs and merchandising. And it was very unusual because this was an R-rated film. Yet it was producing all this merchandising that would also appeal to younger people who would not even be able to theoretically see the movie. That's exactly. But I, I do remember a lot of the toys, and I know that just ap- appealed to me in my 12, 13-year-old mind. But I think the movie just has a lot to say about our nature and about how we want to fight crime. Well, you do pick up interesting point there, because one of the things that I'm going to ask is, what is the relevance of it even today? And one of the things you mentioned, and that is actually talked about in the movie, is we have not privatized the police force yet, but we have privatized jails and hospitals have, have also, if not exactly been privatized, they're now allowed to be for profit. And it's been a disaster. In both cases, it's been an unmitigated disaster. And corruption reigned supreme in both of those cases. So in many ways, the movie asks this question, though I question whether it ever really answers it in a satisfactory way, is what happens when a corporation, a business, takes over something 
that probably shouldn't be privatized and shouldn't be run by the private sector. Well, I think they kind of addressed that in the movie because when OCP starts taking over the police force, uh, the police officers in that district want to go on strike. And then they have a whole section about should police officers be allowed to strike. And it shows interviews from people who are for and against the situation as well. Mm-hmm. So it, it becomes a movie for the people. And as the sequels go on, they kind of establish that motive more and more. I certainly agree with that, that they certainly ask the question and, and explore to some degree. But one can, can make the argument that it's actually a very nihilistic movie because at the very end of the movie, nothing has been resolved. The Omni Consumer Products still own the police. It's still their business. Old Detroit is still as bad as it ever was. The police are still as bad off. They're still underpaid and undermanned. And the person that's left, Dan O'Hurley, is certainly a nicer person than Ronnie Cox and Ferrer. But he's just as greedy and he's just as callous. So at the end of the movie, nothing's changed. It's basically the same as it was at the beginning. And I think they avoid really answering the questions that they ask. You know, I, I do agree with what you're saying, because in the sequel, Dan O'Hurley character becomes much more greedy. In number two, becomes, you know, the really big bad guy. And I think the just intent that Paul Verhoeven was just trying to make with this movie, and I just cannot say for sure, is the fact that, yes, things are bad. Yes, I believe the police state is still bad, but there is a hero that is going to be on our side, and that is, you know, Murphy, because mm-hmm. Murphy Murphy gets his humanity back at the end of the movie. He's no longer a person that's owned by this corporation, especially when he's asked at the end of the movie, hey, son, what's your name? He says, Murphy, mm-hmm. showing that he actually has his humanity intact and restored and can think for himself. He doesn't have to be a product that is owned by this corporation. Everything that's in him is owned by the corporation, but his mind is his own. But now we've got this godlike creature. Well, yeah, there are some uh, parallels to Christ that Paul Verhoeven. I think I sort of agree that, though I also can't prove it, I sometimes think that the movie that Paul Verhoeven made was not the movie that the writers wrote. I sometimes get the feeling that the writers just wrote a pretty straightforward action-packed sci-fi film that they thought was a neat idea. Let's turn a cop into a robot. And Paul Verhoeven came on and said, I'm going to do this film. I want to do something more with it. I just don't want it to be a simple blockbuster escapist sci-fi film. Oh, definitely. And that's the power of having a good director take on someone else's material and make it into a better movie. It was kind of weird because Paul Verhoeven has had some flops here and there. He had a kind of a weird career where he has like a really big hit movie and then a flop and then a bigger hit movie and then another flop. Well, I certainly I would have to say that in doing RoboCop, this was a totally different movie than really anything he had ever done before. This film's from the Netherlands. The closest you would get to something like RoboCop is Soldier Orange, which is at times an over-the-top look at the resistance in the Netherlands during World War II. But most of his films are more character-driven, are more low-key. They're very audacious. They're very controlled. 
And then he comes to the U.S. because he wanted to. He felt limited in the Netherlands. And then he starts making these big, over-the-top, epic, or not exactly always epic, because you can say showgirls necessarily a basic instinct or epic, but they're very, very Hollywood-type films, which don't remotely resemble the films he made really before he came here. And then finally, he went back to the Netherlands, where he made Black Book, which was sort of an amalgam of a Hollywood movie and his earlier films, and then most recently made Elle, which is really the kind of movie he used to make in the Netherlands before he left. So he has had, as you say, a career that hasn't been a straight line. He has definite compartments to his career. And Robocop was a huge hit. I mean, it was what cost 13 million and made 84 million in the US or something like that. So what are some of your favorite scenes from oh. Robocop? <laughs> well, I, I mentioned it before, but it had to be the uh, Ed 209 scene with Kenny. I like the whole Phil Tippett animation that was done, background plates and miniatures and big giant models to create the sequence of them trying to test out their new big military prototype. And you got this right. big giant robot that comes in and he tells one of the guys to pick up a gun and shoot, point it at him. And he does. That's a very good scene. It's so darkly funny. And um, then the reaction is nobody really cared. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, they care that it failed, but they don't really care that someone got shot. Yeah. The, the, the whole, the whole line of delivery when Dan or Haley's character is looking at Ryan Cox and he says to him, Dick, I'm very disappointed in you. My, other favorite moments have to be probably the moment when Robocop goes back to his home and his wife and kid have obviously moved out and they're preparing the home for new owners. As he's going through the home, it shows you flashbacks to him and his wife, the just position of images there. And it's almost like a silent film performance because you're not seeing his eyes, mm-hmm. but you totally get how frustrated this character is and how angry he is just from his movements there. This is where he starts to become more Murphy than Robotop. Right. Two things that also stood out for me is when the original robot that was to be uh, part of the police force can't go downstairs, falls downstairs, (laughs) and the sounds he makes and the movement he makes are like a baby uh, throwing a temper tantrum. I love, I I, I hate to interrupt you, but that one part where he's actually at 209, the big robot is looking at the stairs. He's so terrified of the stairs. It almost looks like someone put their toes in hot water and he starts to walk and falls down. Oh, it's just so great. You, you would have think that they would have thought about that in designing this robot that he can't walk downstairs. The other scene is the final scene, which probably perhaps has the best line in the movie, and that's, you're fired, which oh. you sort of see coming and you want it because you sort of see it coming. Yeah, because Ronnie Cott's character, Dick Jones, puts in a new parameter, because Robocop's got three uh, parameters, and then there's four unclassified, serve the public trust, uphold the law, and something peace. But there's a fourth directory that's classified. When he tries to arrest Ronnie Cott's fourth directory, which says that Robocop did not arrest any right. senior officer workers of OCP, and so he can't do anything I forgot the guy. Yeah, the, man, when he the old fired, man is what they call him. So when the old man does fire Dick Jones, that's when Robotop can spring into action and shoot him and fall, have him fall out the window. I think I would like to say, though, as much as I do enjoy Robocop, I, I think it's a lot of fun. I don't think Paul Verhoeven ever got beyond 
a certain superficiality with it. He tries to make it more than it is. I'm not quite sure he quite succeeds. And there's a certain bit of kitsch and cappiness that really becomes, I can't say it interests his films because you'll see it in some of his earlier films, but I'm not sure quite work as well for his new films. But I have to be honest, as much as I do enjoy RoboCop and I enjoy some of his other films that he made in coming to Hollywood, I always felt this was a real step down for Paul Verhoeven as an artist. He was making these incredibly wonderful films in the Netherlands that were so exciting and so interesting. And then he sort of comes to Hollywood and becomes one of the soulless directors of Hollywood epics and over-the-top blockbusters. And as much as he sort of tried to do more with them than were there, he just couldn't. In the end, you know, he could only do so much. And I was relieved when he started going back to the Netherlands. And though I have a lot of problems with Black Book, L seems to be, as controversial as it is, a sort of return to form for Paul Verhoeven. And that is sort of the movie I really hope he keeps making. But he he is a very talented director. He is a very talented filmmaker. And even these films in the U.S. did show a a master craftsman. He, He really knew what he was doing. He really knew how to put a movie together. He knew how to make it look good. He could try to get beyond the superficiality of it all. And except for things like Showgirls, they made a lot of money. Oh, yeah, definitely. I have not seen any of his movies he made before Robotop. I've just seen the movie he made afterwards i did see black book and i have seen l black book is a movie that i don't really quite remember l i enjoyed that was a quite a twisted little thriller and it right. is, it's unlike any other paul verhoeven feature that i have seen it looks very different the pacing of it is very different if i saw those other movies before robotop then yes i would feel like this would have been a step back especially after seeing l and knowing that he didn't do really intense dramas for me robotop works his satire in the movie still works the satire really does still sting and i think this is the movie where it works the best so in wrapping up are there any final things you might want to say about robocop to say that Robotop is a movie of its time, uh, especially with a lot of the themes that are presented in it. But mm-hmm. I do think that Paul Verhoeven's look about media and how we're obsessed with consuming things has something to say about us now. And I think that is a fun movie. It's it's more in the lines of a dark comedy in a way right. than just a comedy movie. The world is almost like an absurd version of 80s radonomics that it becomes a satire and comedy of those times. I will say a few more trivial things. Dana Hurley is actually, in many ways, most well-known for playing Robinson Crusoe in Noé Benyel's uh, version of that story. He got an Oscar nomination for it. You can also see him in Failsafe and The Last Starfighter. I actually recognize Dan O'Harely for being one of the bad guys in Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. Yes, he is in the third entry in that. Miguel Ferrer is, of course, the son of Jose Ferrer, and Amani Hellman, the director, also did work on this film as well. It got Academy Awards for Best Sound Effects, Editing, and nominations for Best Editing and Sound. 
So with that, let's move on to THX 1138, which was my choice. Uh, the movie came out in 1971. It is directed by George Lucas. The screenplay is by George Lucas and Walter Mersch. That is an expansion of George Lucas's, I guess, student film when he was at uh, the university. It stars Robert Duvall, Donald Pleasance, Maggie A. McComey, Ian Wolfe, Don Pedro Colley, David Ogden stars in his film of view. I think he only has one line. Johnny Weissmuller Jr. as one of the cops and James Wheaton as Ohm, sort of the voice of Jesus. The basic premise revolves around the title character, THX 1138. Everybody in this world is named like a license plate. Futuristic world where sex and reproduction is forbidden and everybody is on drugs. And their only purpose is to create these robot cops and keep the society going. And at one point, THX is beginning to figure out that there's something more and he decides to escape. So when did you first see THX 1138? Well, I know that I saw this movie several years ago. I think I once saw it when Star Wars was having the whole special edition come out to theaters. So I right. know I saw it back then, but I really wasn't paying too close attention to it. I recently did fully watch this movie for the first time, which I watched the director's cut last week mm-hmm. for this podcast. Because I really couldn't tell you... I just knew that there were silver guys wearing police outfits and they're chasing after one bald dude who was <laughs> trying to find another bald chick right there. When I saw this movie back in 1996 or 7 when they're doing the Star Wars special edition, oh, George Lucas, I should look at some of his earlier features. And We watched this movie recently and actually the funny thing is too is that I knew about this movie even before I saw it. Mm. There is a band called Nine Inch Nails. They're an industrial mm. rock band. For their album The Downward Spiral, Trent Reznor uses a sample of THX to open that album. So when I was re-watching it I heard that sample being used. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's from the song Mr. Self-Destruct. This is a very, if you're only know George Lucas from Dredge Star Wars. This is a very different movie. This almost seems like right. Alex Garland type of sci-fi category. Even how the movie begins, the credits scroll kind of like backwards, and it's got that ominous tone in there, and it shows you the whole entire credits of the movie up front, which is something that's right. never used today. But it has like all the crew, and then George Lucas' name on there. The production design is very vast and sparse, and all the actors in this are bald, and and like you said before in the intro, that set is regulated. All the characters, you know, talk to this robot voice that keeps feeding them pills. And the robot keeps saying, what's wrong? What's wrong? And they're saying yes. that their pills are not working well enough. And they're like, well, try more pills like this. And then there's a scene where it kind of looked like Robert Duvall's character is using this machine on his genitals yes, to basically masturbate. He's watching a film of a black woman dancing. And yes, it, it does look like that's exactly what he's doing. So He seems to be a guy that's sick of his life on, you know, trying mm-hmm. to have everything be regulated. And he loves this movement 
Lural. L-U-H. It's definitely an art film. I, it's yes, I think you could say that, yes. <laughs> it's This was adapted from a short, and this short actually won a bunch of awards. He teamed up with Francis Ford Coppola to make a big screen adaptation of his short film. There is just a lot of filler. There's like a long sequence where they're all in this white room. I, I think I'd have to agree with you there. I'm getting the feeling I do like the movie more than you. But yes, once you get in that white room, that scene does tend to go on probably a little longer than it needs to. Because after a point, you're going, there's no plot now. It's just these people in this white room. But I, but I think it's also a movie that's really beautiful to look at. It's got I, really good mm-hmm. cinematography. I love the sound design work. I just think that it could have been trimmed a little bit more and that I probably would have liked this a little bit more. Like, there's not much that goes on in this movie until the very end and that car sequence at the end where mm-hmm. the cops are chasing THX for someone's first feature that is just some amazing filmmaking yeah there, there was the one stunt where someone crashes a car and he goes flying from the car and hits a motorcycle and lands in another car and everybody was stunned and they rush over to him to find out if he's okay and the only thing he's upset about is that everybody rushed over to find out if he was okay because he was afraid they might have ruined this brilliant stunt that he just did. I think you're making some very good points here. I think one of the reasons why uh, People's to Watch It is still last, it has its influence, is the look. It is a film that has a very strong visual style and approach to filmmaking and approach to storytelling because there isn't a lot of plot. For a lot of it, you're just being shown how this world works and you're seeing these two characters, actually three if you count Donald Pleasance, suddenly slowly thinking there's something wrong here. I'm not happy. The pills aren't doing it. And they're coming to realize that they're more than just beings to be used in this weird kind of society. But I think you do have a point. There isn't a lot of plot here. And especially when it gets to the white room, you're sort of going, can we hurry some things up? But I think the visual style of it is so mesmerizing that it in many ways carries the movie for a long time. Well, I can totally see George Lucas being uh, inspired by Metropolis because those movies seem to have similar storylines. And you understand this too. You're a filmmaker. You make a successful short film and your short film is going to be picked up to be a feature by a major studio and that's a huge thing so yes they probably amped up the budget on the effects on the makeup and the set design the set design in this movie looks really kind of cool and i like the fact that you're not quite sure where you are especially in the beginning sequences when it just shows stuff on the computer being typed out people open up their cabinets like where are they in this world this almost seems like a black mirror episode in a weird way yeah uh, i think you could say that yes they're not quite sure exactly where they are and i wasn't quite sure i was still intrigued and i can see a lot of filmmakers being influenced by this story in this movie doing their own project when i was watching this it definitely reminded me of like dark city mm-hmm. which also shows a character who is being thrusted into a world that he's not quite sure about it wants to break free from it itself so i think it's a very stunning accomplishment i think george lucas has been shown to be a very good visual director if you only know george lucas from star wars and a lot of people probably only know him for doing that seeing him do something different is really just kind of 
astounding and it's creative. So yeah, yes. I, I I do rec- I don't want to sound like I'm like not recommending this to people, and I don't want people to think that I fully hate the movie. I just feel like there are certain scenes that happen in this that could have been tweaked a little bit, where it could have just enhanced the action a little bit more. But I think you're making some very good points. Thank you. uh, as fascinating as it is for me to watch it visually and stunning, you do sometimes wonder has Lucas really thought out this world? Because you do wonder how how in the world could this ever have possibly come to be? Pauline Kael said something similar about Blade Runner. How in the world could this ever come to be? Los Angeles in 2029 or whatever it was. The filmmaker doesn't really seem to have created a world that seems to be logically to arise out of society as we see it. And in many ways, his criticism of society has only been held out in one area, and that's the use of drugs and drugs as a controlling force. You know, psychiatrists would issue Valium and things like that to people who weren't happy or antidepressants, perhaps to people who really didn't have that serious issue with depression. But where it doesn't, of course, is that when it came to sex, society became a much freer society. And to a great degree, we've lost that prudishness when it comes to sex, though in some areas it's trying to raise its head again. So he does create this incredible world. It's visually stunning. And I find it more intriguing every time I watch it. But at the same time, you do wonder, is this really well thought out? What is he trying to say? Is there something here? One might say that with RoboCop, which to me doesn't look quite as interesting as THX 1338, has a lot more to say about society and is a lot more realistic look at society. With THX 1138, which is stunning when you look at it visually in comparison to Robocop, probably has a lot less to say. We, I, and I like the movies that are sort of ambiguous, movies that don't give you you know, answers right away. I mentioned you know, Alex Garland because he made the movie um, Annihilation, which is a great science fiction movie that doesn't have a lot of answers with it, even right. Ex Machina. You know, there, it's left to interpretation. And I like the fact that THS 1138 is also left up to interpretation. I like the fact that the robot police in this movie, they're all talking very respectfully and kind when Robert Duvall and... Um, the hologram. Uh, but when they're locked into that room and they obviously have locked the door for mm. from the police to get in, when the police robots are knocking on the door, they're all very polite. Like, it seems you have gotten locked in. Do not worry. We will help get you out. Everything's yes, fine. Carl- you know, kind of like big brother type environment. Which is nothing like the police today. <laughs> There's always been this sort of like lullaby state that government has. Right. Hey, everybody, just take your drugs, relax, watch some Netflix. Here's some more channels here. Don't worry about what we're doing here. All you got to do is just sit in your chair, do nothing, and everything will be fine. And THX is like, I want to try break free from this. So, yeah, it's a story we've seen before many times where a character is unhappy with their lots in life, and they're going to break free from it literally has a guy crawling out of a hole to open up to a new world. I think it's a very well-established story. It just takes its time getting right. there. Uh, like I said before, I think it's a visually great movie, and there's definitely some metaphors on there that you can look into. Uh, I think it's a definitely a good study, especially for a first-time filmmaker, to figure out what can you do with like limited amount of sets and even characters and costume designs and tomatoes. Yeah, they, they, they did do some very interesting things. The sets, I think, in some ways are really very interesting. The chase scene and a lot of those scenes were filmed under a freeway that hadn't been finished 
for a lot of the extras, they went to a drug rehab center nearby where everybody was required to have shaved heads. So they used a lot of those people as extras. At one point, they used a telephone building with all those telephone apparatus in it. Oh, wow. Uh, I think things like that, they just showed a very imaginative way of using. You mentioned, Howard, the fact that the cast members were going to drug treatment clinics where everyone had their heads shaved. That reminds me of a sequence from Philip K. Dick's uh, Standard Darkly, which a little later adapted that into a movie. And at the end, when Keanu Reeves is at a drug treatment center, a few characters in that have their heads shaved bald. So Yeah, I'm not sure exactly what that's about, but yes, apparently that happens. I think both of these films do have one theme, very common in sci-fi films, but it's sort of a very existential theme that you can only go so far in trying to turn a human being non-human. At some point, no matter what you do, the human part of him is going to break through and want to be free and want to be themselves. So in RoboCop, they try to make him into a robot, but ultimately the human part of him comes back and you just can't erase the humanity out of humans. And here they also try to erase the humanity out of humans with drugs. And it just ultimately doesn't work. And in fact, there's some sense that this world that THX lives in is to some degree breaking down. They're constantly having accidents that are destroying not just people, but parts of this world. And, and the computer programming often goes wrong and people can hack it. So I think both of these have one of the great themes of sci-fi story, that you can't get rid of the human part of a human being. Yes, I like that. Huh. Yeah. yeah, let's go with that. Can't that a good, good man down there. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> a few final things that I will add here. I do want to give a special shout out to Ian Wolfe, who plays PTO. He's the old man in the white room. Ian Wolfe has been in something like I don't know how many, three, four hundred TV shows and movies. He dates back from the 1930s. He was in Romeo and Juliet in the 1930s. And you see him pop up everywhere in Sherlock Holmes movies and Falcon movies and everywhere. And he's just instantly recognizable. And he's a very dependable, very good actor. I've never seen him give a bad performance. Caleb Deschanel and Haskell Wexler both worked on the film, both great cinematographers. It was a flop. It did not make it money back but it did prove to be so interesting that then George Lucas was allowed to make American Graffiti which was a big hit and then eventually allowed him to make Star Wars which is one of the biggest hits of all time and even today I think THX 1138 still does have a lot of influence visually for people making movies today so it was a flop at the time but subsequently has actually become a very big hit well it became a hit uh later on when Warner brothers right. allowed him to do his director's cuts yeah which and then uh, they pushed it a lot more and and vhs came out and things of that nature yeah, I mean, if you do rent this movie, make sure I rented this on, like, Voodoo. Make sure you do mm-hmm. rent the director's cut, which is weird because the director's cut is rated R, but mm-hmm. the, the theatrical version is rated G. So in closing out, one of the things that I asked my guests to do is to come up with one or two movies or such in the same vein as the movie they chose that you would recommend for people to see. So you chose RoboCop, so what else would you uh, recommend? Okay. So this is something you have to find on YouTube, but it's okay. a movie called Our Robotop Remake. And a bunch <laughs> of it no, this is great. A bunch of like no, independent like filmmakers 
animators, they each dread their own section of Robocop. And mm-hmm. it's really cool. Some of it, yes, it's low budget, but the passion that these filmmakers have in doing it are pretty great. It's Yes, it's a parody, but it's also at the same time an homage. But I do have one for THS as well, especially since we started talking about the movie. I was going to mention The Truman Show. Okay. The Truman Show, Jim Carrey, and he plays a character named Truman Burbank, who is a star of his own television show, but he doesn't realize that he's a star, and he starts to find out clues about his universe. I think it has a lot of similar- similarities with THS, main character in THS, kind of stuck in this rut. Uh, he doesn't quite know exactly how to get out. Uh, same thing with Truman Burbank. I mean, he is just thinking that his whole world, everything's fine. And then little by little, he starts to unravel clues that his world is not what he thinks it is. Uh, it was written by Andrew Nicolai, who also wrote Gattaca. Okay, so for my first one, I'm going to choose the movie 1984, but not the one with Richard Burton. And I'm choosing the 1956 version, the original one. Though I have to say, I have only seen it once and I liked it, but I was in junior high, so I don't know how well it holds up. It's very hard to find. You can find it on YouTube, but I think it got taken out of circulation by George Orwell's estate. Stars Edmund O'Brien, Donald Pleasance, Jan Sterling, Michael Redgrave, directed by Michael Anderson. But it is also about a man trapped in a society that controls just about every move they make. Sex is highly regulated and they're constantly watched. Uh, the other one is Alphaville, which is a movie by filmmaker Jean-Luc Godard. came out in 1965. stars Eddie Constantine, Anna Karina, and Akim Tamaroff. It is about a secret agent that is sent into an area or a city called Alphaville, which is being run by a computer and does not allow any of the citizens to feel emotions like love. And his job is to take out the computer and free the people so that they can feel emotions and feel love once again. So those are my two. Those are great choices right there. I also would also recommend Brazil, Terry Gilliam. Yes, I can see that. Being something to with the THX. So in closing out, the last thing we'll do is if you could give us uh, some idea of what's coming up, what what you're doing now. and what. Uh, I would say by the time this episode airs, probably later on during the week, I'm going to be having on guest Daniel Lackey from TV Good Sleep Bad Podcast. Both him and I are going to be talking about the one of the greatest movies of all time, Josie and the Pussycats. Uh, he's <laughs> never he's never seen it before. We talked about Robocop having a lot of like, satire about consumerism. Well, Josie and the Pussycats takes that concept and amps it up. And then later on the podcast, probably at the time this episode is released, I'm doing a new series called Movies That Changed Me. And it could be either something that's good or bad. And I'm going to talk about my first experience in movies going to be talking about fantasia and then talking about maybe ghostbusters going to talk about irreversible going to talk about all different types of movies that just had an impact on me sounds great for me i'll go over my usual litany of things i'm up to I do have a blog called Rantings and Ravings. It's a blog that focuses on script consultation as well as issues screenwriters face. I've published two books of short stories on Amazon, The Starving Artist and Other Stories, and The Five Corporations and One True Religion. These are short stories that are sci-fi, horror, and fantasy. 
I have published the second edition of my book, More Rantings and Ravings of a Screenplay Reader. It's a screenwriting book. I'm an amateur photographer. You can find that on Instagram. And you can find other episodes of uh, Pop Art on such streaming platforms as Podomatic, Anchor, Spotify, SoundCloud. I think I'm supposed to be on Google Play, but I haven't been able to find it yet. Most recent one uh, before this was with filmmaker Michelle Ellen, who chose Best in Show, and I, in turn, chose Series 7. The contenders. So until next time, uh, thank you very much, Vern, for being on the show. I really appreciate you being my guest. Howard, thank you so much, man, for having me be on the show. And I'm also very thankful because Howard was on one of Cinema Recall's last episodes talking about our favorite foreign films. So I definitely right. appreciate you being on the show. And I'm very honored and happy to be a guest on your podcast. So until next time, listeners, thank you very much.